Welcome to the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, one of the podcast hosts. I get to interview authors of the art and architecture books published by Yale University Press, and I'm quite thrilled to introduce my guest, Julia Bryan-Wilson. For many of our listeners, Julia will need no introduction. She is an art historian. She is a professor in Columbia University's Department of Art History. She is the author of numerous books, including Art Workers, Radical Practice in the Vietnam War Era, which was a 2009 Best Book of the Year for both the New York Times and Art Forum. Her research areas include feminist and queer theory, production and fabrication, craft histories, visual culture of a nuclear age, and collaborative practices. And many of these interests are visible in her latest book, Louise Nevelson's Sculpture, Drag, Color, Join, Face. Julia, thank you so much for talking to me about your book today. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks so much for having me. And I think we need to start, actually, by talking about the book itself, the concept and design of it, which you've dubbed a modular monograph. Um, would you describe it and talk about how and when the idea took shape? Certainly. The book is comprised of four separate volumes that can be read in any order, and they are contained within a black slipcase. So it kind of confuses categories in a way because um, you could term them, you could say that it's four books, in fact, um, instead of one. But I am really trying to challenge the idea of a monograph, which typically is a study of one artist by one author and often has a kind of chronological arc or um, some kind of gesture towards uh, summing up a life in a way. And I wanted to push back against that and actually splinter it is the term I use, splinter um, my examination of Nevelson's sculptural practice um, by taking these slices of and, and investigating her process and her materials in a more deep way. And, you know, I struggled for a long time to come up with this format. Um, and I, I have to say that I'm very grateful to my editor at Yale, Amy Canonico, who was very supportive of this very um, experimental format that has, I think, been a little confusing for some because it doesn't have an introduction. It doesn't have a typical conclusion. But I think it also gives the reader a different sense of agency and maybe even of, of play because you get to decide which volume to start with. Um, they're very light and portable. They're easy to kind of tuck into your backpack or take on the train each ind independent volume. And they're all inspired by Nevelson's own work with modularity and seriality. Yeah. So, you know, in addition to to relating specifically to Nevelson's sculpture, um, did you wind up thinking that this idea could work elsewhere? Uh, you know, a book not about Louise Nevelson. Was the splintering process interesting for you intellectually in a way that made you wonder whether it had other applications? Oh, such a good question. I mean, it was so inspired by my thinking alongside Nevelson's own work, and especially her sculpture that is wall-based, um, often gridded reliefs. And in the early days of her making these, they're found of scavenged wood, um, painted monochromatic colors, um, usually black, but sometimes white or gold. So I was thinking about the modularity of her grids and also that how she would rearrange them. And it was just, a, a, it began as a thought experiment for me to think, well, how could I kind of echo that in book format? And of course, it felt really hard to do that 
in a single volume. And um, I mean, I did get inspiration from other uh, sort of box set books, um, including um, a volume, a book called Float by the poet Anne Carson, which is a series of thin chapbooks that are in a plastic container. That was really, that helped me think about um, how something like this might work. I also, you know, I uh, turned in some ways to sort of like children's literature and thinking about something like the Chronicles of Narnia. I always, that was kind of a funny um, touchstone for me as I was conceptualizing this project, which is that, you know, here you are going on a series of adventures in a way, kind of um, critical adventures into Nevelson's work. And you don't know where it's going to lead you in a way. Um, and also, it, I mean, just to go back to the C.S. Lewis, those are um, presented not chronologically. Some of them are prehistory. Some of them jump into the future. So anyway, that one, that's a kind of like, that was something from my own past that became resonant in a strange way. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Could it work for other books? The other books have been written this way, I would say. But for me, it was very very closely hewed to the kinds of pursuits, critical pursuits that I was trying to lay out in thinking about Nevelson's work in particular. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those, uh, you know, in the context of the words that you've chosen for each of the the volumes in the box set, drag, color, join, and face. And, I, you know, I think we could devote an entire podcast episode to talking about the the number of ways that you approach each of these words and take them from every possible angle. It's just fantastic. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about that. And then I'm also curious to know, uh, you know, kind of chicken and egg question. Did did these words surface for you immediately and then you kind of packed your thinking about Nevelson around them or did they arise later in the process of writing when you started to think about how it could be organized into volumes? Well, I'll answer that last one first, which is <clears throat> it took me a long time. It, it took me a long time to research this book. It took me a long time to write this book. Um, that's that's what happens, I guess, with art historical uh, books that are deeply researched. Um, so the whole thing all told was, you know, eight, nine years of my thinking with Nevelson really um, intently. And at the beginning, I just had a series of questions, actually. And I used to give talks that were called something like, you know, 12 questions about Louise Nevelson. And I, I did initially think that what the how the book would be organized was around these questions. And um, because I, in some ways, don't ever come up with definitive conclusions. I mean, I have speculations, I have hunches, I have you know, I, I kind of dive deep in some ways, but I also, <clears throat> I leave a lot open-ended and I think that the work invites us to do that. So for a long time, it was just a kind of restless um, interrogation in a way, you know, how do I think about her use of the monochrome? How do I think about her kind of animism or her, the, the sense that she had of the liveliness of wood, for example? And those 12 or so questions, it was a somewhat arbitrary number, slowly consolidated themselves down, I guess, <clears throat> in the process of my research into these four keywords. And to say more about them, um, each of them is kind of is drawn directly from a, a procedure of her own making. So drag, one meaning of the word drag um, or the title drag is the way that Nevelson was a gleaner, a scavenger um, trawling the streets of New York. Um, dragging things off from the gutters and construction sites 
<clears throat> back into her studio, the uh, color is somewhat self-evident in that she made works that were painted. Um, she also did sometimes leave uh, wood raw, but I also take color in the direction of thinking about racialization and skin tone um, in the context of mid-century U.S. politics. For join, um, I was thinking about the act of conjoining, that is to say, hammering the sculptures together or gluing them. I also thought about her own household kinships uh, and, and the networks and the communities that she was part of. And then lastly, face is about her own face um, and the contested realm in which photographs of her circulate, um, as well as the face of the sculpture. Her, her sculptures often have a kind of frontality and I think also about the idea of the facade. And then I also talk about my own facing of her work and how a, a person faces wood, because so much of her work is made of wood in a time of climate crisis. And actually, in the beginning, I wanted them to be um, organized alphabetically. So the book was actually going to be called Color Drag Face Join, um, just to kind of you know uh, commit to the arbitrary logic of the alphabet. But I realized that actually um, organizing it in the way that I have is adheres more to her own process because first she would drag things off the street. Then, kind of surprisingly, she would paint those individual pieces um, and then, you know, kind of have them in her storehouse. So they were for, dipped in black paint, often these chair legs or banisters or doorknobs, et cetera, and then waiting to be assembled. Then she would put them together or join them. And lastly, she, they would face the world and circulate back out to an audience. So for each of them, I did try to unpack as much as possible out of these words that are both nouns and also verbs, because each became kind of these incredibly rich terrains in which to focus in on some of the you know, politics of her process and her materiality. So, I mean, I, I hope that they... Um, feel as rich to the reader as they did to me as I was writing it. But definitely it was a long process and it didn't immediately come to me. You know, this was all a matter of, I guess, battling with my own my own doubts sometimes, uh, my own convictions often, and trying to take risks in the realm of, um, you know, my writerly commitments. Mm. So that, now I have two follow-up questions, actually. Uh, one, you know, the the number of ways you play out the various meanings of of the words drag color, join, face, um, reminds me of something you write in the book about Nevelson's use of sculptural elements as a syntax. That is the idea that the component parts of her works function in some ways like a grammar, which I thought was a fascinating perspective from which to view them. Would you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, in general, and also specifically in the context of a frequent criticism of Nevelson's work, which is that it is repetitive to a fault. Right. Yes. I mean, the it, when I did learn about Nevelson as an art history student, <clears throat> and I didn't really that much, she was kind of glanced at, it was to hear that she was very, that all of her pieces looked the same. Um, that was the critique that was kind of the received wisdom about her. And I mean, it's just patently not true. She had a, an idiom. And I, I kind of try to re-narrate that as her commitment and a really astonishing fealty to um, her materials. So that's one way that I tried to kind of re-signify what was a, always in her lifetime and sense a very mixed reception. You know, she had her 
defenders and she was very famous and in many collections. And she also had um, a lot of detractors and people who just really did not think she was an interesting artist at all. So one of the things, the challenges that I gave to myself was to try to put pressure on this idea of repetition and take it seriously, you know, not to dismiss it, um, not to simply say like, oh, uh, you know, the critics are wrong, but to say, oh, but well, it's true that there is there is something that she's working through here because she is returning time and again to very similar, you know, um, forms and rearranging them in different configurations. And I do attempt to kind of describe what it means when, well, I'll just, I'll give two specific examples where to me, this idea of the, of the grammar of the wood speaks in different tones, I guess. So two large monumental wall-based sculptures, one of which was called Homage to the Holocaust, excuse me, Homage to the Six Million. And I, uh, that was a, um, my my blunder there is significant because it's an obvious reference to the number of Jewish people killed in the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a, an, another piece called Homage to the World. And, you know, the, uh, in a kind of surface way, they're of similar scale. They're both all black. They're both wood gridded reliefs. They have a, you know, they, sure, they're both Nevelsons. You can kind of grasp that immediately. But then when you really look at them, they they speak in such different voices because the piece, the Homage to Six Million, has kind of um, niches and um, that are half covered over. Um, there's a more of a ragtag, hodgepodge assortment of of things found um, within the sculpture, as opposed to homage to the world, which has this kind of regularity, more uh, and a, a kind of almost musical sense of rhythm. So, to me, this idea of the way that they the constituent parts are put together. Um, has a kind of grammar or has a kind of formal logic. And with within that grammar, of course, just like any grammar, the words or the elements can be rearranged to give totally different meanings. You think that was part of her invitation as an artist to the viewer to, you know, not stop at saying, oh, this looks like the one I just looked at before, but, you know, insist that people take the time to notice the differences and figure out why, why they're different and what's different. I really do think so. I absolutely think so. And I think not only is that about the act of assemblage, um, but also the fact that she did work so often in the monochromatic format, um, because that does also invite you to slow down. And one of the claims that I make is, sure, I mean, they were, you know, a piece that's painted all black is painted all black. And so on one on the one hand, you could say it's obviously a monochrome, but of course, when you're standing in front of something that has depth and plays with negative space and things that are, you know, maybe protruding a little bit or are some things are curved and some things are planar, the way that light is going to fall on that means inevitably it's going to travesty the f- idea of the monochrome. The works are not monochromatic. They have shadow. They have depth. They have moments of illumination. They have dust. I got really interested in just tracking how much dust accumulates in inside of her sculptures and the impossibility of a kind of dust-free world. Um, I just saw a piece of hers at the Whitney um, uh, last week that's in uh, that's um, faces a big window, and so the light comes in really strongly, and you can actually see little moments where it has you know maybe she touched it up or someone else touched it up. So 
um, and the spray paint doesn't they're they're not quite matching the different mm. paints so it doesn't it's not a, it doesn't register as a monochrome to, to your eye really at all you see different areas of you know relative matte sometimes the matte paint is really matte sometimes it's less matte so and those things are sometimes coexisting in the same piece so definitely i think it was an invitation i mean her method of making was an invitation to slow down and and take it in and not just uh, walk by quickly in a museum and, and just kind of check the box like oh that's a nevelson and it it looks like all the other nevelsons right and then uh, my other question uh having to do with the titles of the volumes in your book um, is about color in which you do talk about her monochrome a lot, but you also write in that um, that volume that thinking al- alongside blackness while not being black is in large measure what drew me to Nevelson's work in the first place. And I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about that um, and also some of the ways that you approach Nevelson's relationship to race and issues of uh, racial issues in this country at mid-century. Great. Thank you. Yes, that, that's a really important um, component of that volume and of, in fact, of the whole book and the project. Um, I mean, I, I think uh, one thing to say is that I was I kind of had a revelation that I wanted to write this book in the first place while standing in the middle of an exhibition by the Black artist Noah Purifoy that was at LACMA in 2015. And it was a really beautiful show. And I had known his outdoor environment at Joshua Tree. I'd been going there for some time. Um, uh, but this this show kind of put his story together in a new way. And um, I had already been thinking, I mean, Nevelson was sort of on my mind, but it hadn't yet kind of cohered into um, <clears throat> the sort of urgency that I started to feel about writing this book until I was standing in that show and saw this really incredible attempt to sort of refashion the world out of fragments. And Purifoy, who kind of was galvanized by the Watts Rebellion of 1965 and did a lot of work out of the kind of burned rubble um, of that uprising. And I started to think about what it would be like to put those artists in conversation. um, And Purifoy shows up a few times in the book as someone um, who's in dialogue with Nevelson and, in fact, has made work, a, a, an explicit work that is titled for Louise Nevelson. So he obviously knew of her precedent. Um, so I was thinking about what it meant to be someone who is such a scavenger um, and scavenging as a kind of minoritarian project. And also it makes assemblages and the uh, assemblage also as a, a kind of technique of 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 someone from the margins, someone um, who's making much out of nothing or much out of little. Um, and having those th- you know, those components were kind of speaking to me in a way loudly alongside the uh, her fealty to blackness, her fealty to the color black, and also what I began to think of as her theorization of blackness, um, because she had statements about how blackness for her was about greatness, about peace, it wasn't just one thing. I mean, she had many things to say about it, and sometimes they contradicted each other. But just her return again and again um, to this pigment that, to me, um, you know, in the context of 20th century American social life, can't cannot help but be racialized. Um, and I cite a lot of literature by um, Black thinkers like Fred Moten, who also talk about the kind of um, unconscious, as it were, of using Black paint um, for modernist um for, mon- for, mo- for modernist artists. So 
I did think that it was important and in fact, potentially quite strident of her to keep with her blackness um, starting in the 40s, starting in the 40s and the 50s and this, you know, all the way through to 1988, which is when she died. And I, I hope that that doesn't come off as too programmatic. Um, her blackness means many things, no doubt. But I was interested in having um, having that as not just a possibility, but in my mind, a kind of certainty that the work is in dialogue with the the racialization um, of blackness in this country. And I was also following in the footsteps of a really amazing show um, curated by Adrian Edwards that did put Nevelson in conversation with a bunch of other um, art that is black, some of which by some of which is by black artists. That was called Blackness and Abstraction, and mm-hmm. that was a really fantastic precedent. And how how does that then work with you know a lot as you've said a lot of her sculpture is this matte black, um, but she there are some that's white, there's some that's gold. Um, how do those kind of fit into this to this idea? Right. Sure. Well, I mean, the majority were black. So again, and again, she that was the kind of the consistent um, undercurrent or the thing she kept coming back to again and again. But of course, both white and gold are also charged colors with manifold associations around race and class. So I also delve into that, um, talking about, um, you know, why and when she shifted to white on the occasion of an exhibition at uh, the Museum of Modern Art in 1959 for a project called Dawn's Wedding Feast, um, what that looks like, um, how she turned to gold um, after trips to the panhandle of Texas, which is actually where I'm from originally, and how those works have a a kind of um, faded grandeur or almost have a kind of kitsch or camp quality. So I think these things all, um, you know, they can't be disassociated from one another, the kind of racial valences, the class valences, and the gendered valences. And of course, like I, I said, I'm not stating that to look at a Nevelson is to just, you know, that there's only one story there or that there's only, you know, that I've found some kind of key of interpretation, but I'm spinning out possibilities for how we can understand why she might have been drawn again and again and again to the Black monochrome. Mm-hmm. Um, you write interestingly about some potential sources of influence uh, on Louise Nevelson. I mean, you write also about those whose work has been influenced by her and Purifoy, among others. Um, what are some of the thoughts that you had about um, craft and artwork that that might have influenced her work? Yeah, it's a great question. Thanks for that. I mean, uh, the que- the telling of influence or the mapping of influence in art history, you know, gets us into really tricky territory because so much of the time it's about very specific lineages and genealogies and has to do with mapping kind of progression or, you know, unidirectional flow. And um, I, so part of what I was hoping to do as well in this book was somewhat um, trouble that, trouble the idea of kind of those clean lines of influence in which, you know, some great genius comes before and then others kind of, you know, react against that. I mean, that's the sort of, um, that's typically been the line in in a lot of canonical Euro-American art histories. And I was trying to create a kind of alternative to that that is more feminist in a way and also just more attentive to all the many sources that she would have been exposed to. So, I mean, for sure, Nevelson looked at and cared about someone like Pablo Picasso. 
definitely she looked at and cared about, um, yeah, the collages of Brock. She, um, many people compared her to Kurt Schwitters. And, you know, I mention all those things. I don't, I would, I don't ignore them, but I don't amplify them, uh, those influences, simply because I feel like other people have done that work and that my project was to talk about some potential other paths, other uh, material culture that she would have um, encountered and that might give us a different sense of why, you know, the monochrome was important to her. So, for example, I looked at Ukrainian white work uh, embroidery and Nevelson, who was born in 1899 in Tsarist Russia in a town called Peryoslav in what is now Ukraine, um, would have been very familiar with Ukrainian white work. And there is a whole incredible tradition there of um, white on white needlework and also cut work where there's little negative spaces. And to me, the uh, and often geometric, um, to me, the parallel was really obvious. Um, she actually owned a lot of um, samplers, so she cared about embroidery a lot, and she thought about textiles. And they have, a lot of the sculptures, to me, have a kind of textile logic, um, and that was even mentioned in her own time. I also um, think about her use of black on black in terms of the Tiwa indigenous pottery of Maria and Julian Martinez, um, who, you know, kind of... Uh, were at the forefront of resurrecting uh, a, a really um, a traditional form of black-on-black -black pottery in the U.S. Southwest. And she collected um, indigenous pottery of the U.S. Southwest. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that she would have seen some of that. And to me, this is just a way of kind of differently telling a story of art history that doesn't always go back to these touchstones of these like great male artists, you know, with a capital A, but rather um, helps us think expansively about all the kinds of influences by people whose names we know and, and um, women whose names we, the record no longer, um, that we no longer have in the record. Mm. Thinking expansively that way and also thinking quite specifically about Louise Nevelson and the things that she touched and the things that were in her life. Exactly. That's right. Mm. Exactly. Well, I'd like to finish up um, by going back to something you mentioned earlier, which is the inconsistency in Nevelson's reception, both during her career as a living artist and since her death in 1988. Um, and, you know, you talk in the book about how you have ha you had conversations with other scholars or art critics or art historians who seemed unimpressed with your focus on Nevelson. But you insist that there's something enduringly relevant about her work um, and talk about your book as a rescue rather than a recovery. Um, one of the things I thought was really refreshing and wonderful about your book is that you seem personally to be kind of puzzling through this through the course of the writing as well. You know, I mean, you're compelled by Nevelson, but ask yourself why, <laughs> why you are. <laughs> Um, and so I wonder if you would uh, talk a little bit about the inconsistency in her reception, both in terms of how she fits into the ongoing study of art history and in terms of your own interest. Yeah, great. It's true. She she I mean, she was hugely famous in her own lifetime, you know, an absolute kind of lion and a legend. And she still is a legend uh, in part because of the way that she looked. And I grapple with that as a kind of uh, nodal point, I think, of, of her um lasting significance. 
how she looked, how she dressed, how she made up her face, etc. It's become somewhat tedious for me to have to rehearse these things because to me, it, it often was very sexist. But I also, cut, you know, want to take it seriously that she had a, a self-fashioning that mattered to her and actually has mattered a lot to the world. So um, that's one thing to say is that she was really, really, you know, really um, celebrated in her own time at the same time that, as I said, there were whole camps of critics who kind of didn't, yeah, didn't, just didn't find her very interesting. How she's been absorbed or not absorbed within a kind of canonical telling of 20th century art is interesting. It's very, um, I would say, uneven. Um, you know, she was one of the few artists who kind of was able to make a living um, pursuing her art in mid-century America. And um, so, of course, like it, it would be crazy for me to say that she has been neglected. I mean, and I, I don't ever say that or that she's been kind of, you know, she's been consigned to the dustbin of history. I mean, that, that would be really overstating the case. But she doesn't have the kind of um, robust um, re reputation art historically that I that you know, that others of her same kind of cohort do, you know, like Louise Bourgeois. And she has, you know, there has been some, and she, and I did constantly when I was taught, say, telling people that I was writing about her, I got all kinds of quizzical looks or, you know, just outright negative uh, assessments about the fact that she was boring or that she, you know, wasn't relevant anymore or that she, you know, what was there to say about her, you know, all of the, yeah, anyway, very dismissive. So, I, I felt, and I too, in a way, was kind of somewhat bewildered by my own passion, <laughs> just because I, I think I do come to project, and I think I do, you know, uh, come to projects often being, tr because I'm troubled by something, you know, like, why am I so interested? How can I learn more about this figure and also learn more about the blind spots of art history or the kind of gendered fault lines of you know, my own discipline by diving more into this this figure. And I think I did discover a lot in that uh, by asking those questions and constantly restlessly asking those questions of myself. And in a way, there was, you know, a bit of a journey of self-exploration. I would never, that sounds really hokey. Can't believe I said that, but it, it kind of was <laughs> because I kind of arrived in this moment of incredible um, forest fires in California, which is where I was living and realizing that like to look at a Nevelson was like kind of terrifying, but also that it gave me some interesting comfort and realizing that the reason I had began the project was not only, you know, standing in the middle of this Purifoy exhibition um, and but also because I the past decade in California has been so riven by the drought and trees dying and to think with wood in this way was um, gave me an opportunity to to kind of critically reflect on that and gave me some distance or non-distance. It pushed me closer, actually. It pushed me uncomfortably close, but in a way that uh, I found bracing or tonic. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm actually glad, I'm really glad you pulled out those uncertainties or the kind of self-questioning because I really, I hope that's an invitation to the reader to also be skeptical of, of my own processor to, I don't know, I, I hope that it feels generous um, because of course you just, you don't have to be persuaded by me. I'm not, I'm not out to persuade to, I'm not out to persuade and say like, she belongs in the canon. You know, that wasn't the project. The project is not like she's been neglected and now don't you see she's great. Um, I mean, maybe that's like a side effect, but that wasn't the goal. The goal was to say, 
here is this puzzling and intriguing figure. Um, you know, let let's hash, let's kick it around a little. Let's <laughs> let's work out like why why I you know why she did what she did. She was very driven, and why would someone you know decades later also be driven to pursue and and think with her this really kind of idiosyncratic way of making. It absolutely feels like a generous book. And, uh, and you know, the reader feels you with them the entire way through. And that is, uh, is a very inviting way to read, to read a book. And thank you for writing such a thoughtful book. And thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you so much, Jessica. I'm so, so happy that we got to do this. And I loved your questions. And I hope that the um, audience enjoys these four volumes. Yes, I hope they do too. I'm sure they will. The book, the modular monograph, Louise Nevelson's sculpture, drag, color, join, face is available now in bookstores and online. Thank you for listening. And please visit us online at YaleBooks.com for more episodes of this podcast, as well as information about all of our books.